We are turning again tonight to uh, the book of Revelation, so I'll invite you to open now to the, the 14th chapter, Revelation chapter 14. While you're turning there, we'll pause and ask the Lord's help. Father, we thank you that um, we can come to your word tonight. Thank you that when we come to your word, as we have read from Daniel 7, and as we have sung, that we see the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, that he is coming. So as we look at his coming from this chapter tonight, speak to us and make us eager and longing for that day when we'll see him face to face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The last six or seven chapters of this book of Revelation have been centered, as you may remember, around seven trumpets. And those seven trumpets are just one in a series of seven in this book. There were seven churches in first century Asia Minor in chapters two and three. There were seven seals on God's scroll of human history that were broken open by the Lamb, revealing what life in this world will be like between the first coming and the second. And then, as we've seen, there are seven trumpets which blow and unfold for us the period that we usually call the Great Tribulation, these final days of intense trial on planet Earth. And so in chapters 8 through 14, we've been reading about that period of those seven trumpets. We've been reading about the events surrounding the Great Tribulation. And we have been shown, uh, first of all, what God is doing during that period of trial. We've watched as God, just before that trial, is sealing his chosen people so that their faith fail not. And we have seen God during these seven trumpets pouring out divine judgment on stubborn men and women who will not repent. We've also seen what Satan is up to during those days of trial as well, deceiving the nations, just as he's doing today, but specifically in those final days, deceiving the nations through the special agency of an unholy trinity, Satan himself and the Antichrist and the false prophet. And now, having seen what both God and the devil are doing during this period of seven trumpets, during this period of great tribulation, tonight in chapter 14, the curtain is peeled back a bit more, and we see the activities of a few other persons during this final period on planet Earth as well. So read it with me now, beginning in verse 1. Then I looked... And behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. 
And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. There's so much material here, so much to cover that we could spend several sermons unpacking all the different things that John saw and wrote. But tonight, as we've been doing, we're going to try just to get the flyover version and see all that's here, or at least most of what's here. And so I want you to see that perhaps the main thing is having seen what both God and Satan are doing during this great tribulation, this last chapter, as I said, gives us a look at the activities of what some other persons are doing during those days as well. And I'd like to divide our time tonight along those lines. So notice, first of all, the first set of other persons, 144,000 saints in verses 1 through 5. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. 144,000 saints. Now, we have seen these folks before, have we not? Back in chapter 7, they were described there as 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 
And we said, first of all, that that number, 144,000, is probably not meant as a precise head count, but is symbolic of completeness. 12, a number of completeness, times 12, a number of completeness, times 1,000, another number of completeness. That's 144,000, and the point of that number seems to be that God will seal all of his chosen people in preparation for the great tribulation. Not one of them will be left out. Not one of them will be missing. And then we also said that the description that these are from every tribe of the sons of Israel probably does not mean that these people are all necessarily ethnic Jews, but remembering how often the New Testament speaks of all believers using Jewish terminology, these 12 tribes, again, are probably another symbol of completeness. None of them is missing. None of God's people are missing. And so God, in chapter 7, was sealing all of his chosen people in preparation for the great tribulation, that their faith not fail. He will, in those days, guard all their hearts so that their faith does not fail in those incredibly trying times. And then what do we find here as we come back to chapter 14 near the end of that period of trial that they were prepared for? What do we find? Well, we find that all 144,000 of these sealed ones are still in the picture, still worshiping the Lamb, still following him wherever he goes. And the point is that God has done what he purposed in chapter 7 to do. He protected them. He sealed them in chapter 7. And here we find them near the end of time still doing what he sealed them, what he protected them to do. Their faith has not failed because God has kept his people. When others during this last period on planet Earth are blaspheming God because of the great plagues that he pours out on planet Earth, these sealed ones, verse 3, are singing a new song. When the world system in that day can best be described using the metaphor of a harlot here in verse 8. These sealed ones, verse 4, have kept themselves chaste. And when the rest of mankind in the midst of God's judgment refuses to repent, as we saw in chapter 9, these sealed ones, verse 4, follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Here, verse 12, is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. They began by being sealed by God and they've continued on walking with him. And why have they done that? Why do they keep the commandments of God? Why do they maintain their faith in Jesus? Well, it's not because they're so wonderful in and of themselves, is it? It's not because these people are any less sinful by nature than their neighbors. No, the Apostle Paul has taught us once and for all, hasn't he, that all alike are under sin. And so if all alike are under sin, if everyone in this world is sinful by nature, how is it that these people behave so differently? Why do these saints in Revelation 14 keep the commandments and keep their faith in Jesus? Well, it's not because of anything natural in themselves. It's because in chapter 7 they were sealed by the living God. It's because here in verse 4, they were purchased with the blood of the Lamb. And because he who began that good work in them, Philippians 1.6, will complete it. That's why we find them here in chapter 14 still trusting, still obeying, still worshiping in the midst of a world gone to pot. 
And you know the same is true for us. If we have been sealed, if we have been bought by the blood of Christ, then we will keep going as well. And the things that are said of these people ought to be true of us if we are in Christ. We too have been sealed for the day of redemption, according to Ephesians 4.30. Indeed, you may remember that the sealing of these people in chapter 7 took place not during the Great Tribulation, but during that era of world history in which we now live. And we said when we looked at chapter 7 that we are among this group. We are among the people whom God has sealed for the day of redemption. We too have the name of the Lamb and the name of His Father, verse 1, on our foreheads. We too have been purchased with His blood. We too are protected by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1. Therefore, we too ought to walk as these people walked. We ought to be able to be described in the same way as these 144,000 are described here in Revelation 14. In other words, it ought to be said of us, verse 3, they sang a new song before the throne. You sing to the Lord? It ought to be said of us, they have kept themselves chaste verse 4 have you kept yourself chaste are you keeping yourself it ought to be said of us verse 4b they follow the lamb wherever he goes do you do that it ought to be said of us verse 5 no lie was found in their mouth and verse 5b they are blameless that doesn't mean perfect it just means that we live our lives in such a way as that people don't have a lot to shoot at if they try to bring us down We walk with God. It ought to be said of us, verse 12, they keep the commandments of God. Do you know the Ten Commandments? If you don't know them, how do you know that you're keeping them? It ought to be said of us, they keep their faith in Jesus, verse 12b. We have been purchased from among men, verse 4, with the same blood as this 144,000. We have been sealed with the same Holy Spirit of promise as they were. We are protected by the same power of God, and therefore we ought to have the same holy testimony and the same godly perseverance as these saints do. Indeed, if we're in Christ, we will, because he who sealed us is faithful, and he will do it. That's the thing. Those whom God purchases, those whom God seals, no matter where you pick up in the journey, not only in the book of Revelation, but in the journey of your life, no matter where you go along, you'll find them maybe struggling, maybe with a dark cloud over their head for a season. But if you look at their life, you will find them over time just continuing to walk the path, continuing to walk with God, continuing to trust in Jesus. Not perfectly, not without stumbling, but we keep going. That's what these are doing because they're kept by God. That's what we ought to be doing. So that's the first group that we need to notice in Revelation 14, 144,000 saints. But then secondly, I want you to notice also three angels in verses 6 through 12. Three angels. Notice them. In verse 6, there is an angel flying in mid-heaven. And another angel in verse 8. Then another angel in verse Nine, Three angels, and each of them has a message to deliver. The first in verse 6 has an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, while the second and the third angel have messages of divine judgment to pronounce on the earth. 
three angels, each of whom has a message, but their messages are slightly different. There's good news and there's bad news. But I want you to notice that both in the good news and in the bad, these angels have something surprising to say to us, and that's where I want you to fix your attention. Think, first of all, about the first angel in verses 6 and 7. This is our kind of angel because he has an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth. He's charged with the same task that we are. He's charged to proclaim good news to every nation and tribe and tongue and people, we're told. And all that sounds very familiar to us, doesn't it? That's what we're supposed to be doing. Just as we are to proclaim the gospel before the window of repentance closes in our generation, this angel will proclaim the gospel to those living in the last generation. He issue a final gospel call before God's wrath is finally poured out. And we resonate with that sense of urgency. I hope that before God's wrath is poured out, there needs to be good news. There needs to be gospel proclaimed. And that's what this angel is doing. He has a eternal gospel to proclaim. But I want you to notice that the actual message, the gospel that this angel proclaims, may actually sound a little bit unusual to us at first blush. Listen to what he says in verse 7. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. That's his gospel. Now, that's not normally the gospel that we would think of sharing if we were trying to win a friend to Christ, is it? Those aren't the words that we would use. This isn't the verse that we would turn to. Our message, our gospel, usually focuses on the cross of Christ and the forgiveness of sins and the hope of heaven for those who will trust him and so on. And, of course, it should focus on these things. But here, the angel preaches the gospel, and he doesn't say it like that. Here, I think what we're to see is the angel reminding us that Jesus dying and us being forgiven and going to heaven is not all there is to the gospel. The gospel, according to verse 7, is not just about forgiveness of sins. It's also about the fear of the Lord. The gospel is not only about our good, but verse 7, about God's glory. The gospel is not merely about washing sinners, but about worshiping the Father. I hope you hear the emphasis on God in this angel's voice in verse 7. So often, when we talk about the eternal gospel, we talk about it in terms of what we will get out of it, what sinners will get out of it. And that's not wrong, because the New Testament is replete with that kind of language, telling us what sinners will get out of the good news. That's why we call it good news. And Ephesians 1 tells us that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. So it's not wrong for us to think about what we get out of the gospel. But this first angel reminds us that the gospel is also about what God should get out of it too. What is the eternal gospel that he preaches in verse 7? Fear God, give him glory, worship him that's part of the good news too and that part of the good news is especially necessary in a perverse culture like the one we read about in revelation 14 and it's important in a self-centered culture like the one in which we live where everybody wants to go to heaven right everybody wants god to bless me 
Well, the gospel is more than that. The gospel is fear him, worship him, give glory to him. We're to call our neighbors not merely to get out of hell free, but to fear the Lord. We're to call our neighbors not only to personal fulfillment, but to give him glory. The eternal gospel is about God even more than it is about us. And we should make sure that we don't forget that as we proclaim it to every tribe and people and language and nation. Verse 6. That's the first angel. But now the next two angels have a very different message to proclaim in some ways. It's not a gospel. It's not good news as much as it is an announcement of God's judgment upon his enemies. And again... There's much in this message that sounds familiar to us as well. For instance, we're not surprised in verse 8 to hear the world system described along the lines of a harlot. We're not described in verse 10 to read about the reality of hell. And we're not uh, surprised in verse 11 to read about the eternality of hell. At least I hope we're not surprised by those things. In spite of popular opinion, there is a real hell, isn't there? And its smoke, verse 11, does really go up forever and ever. Don't ever forget that as you look at your unbelieving friends. In fact, just picture your unbelieving friends or family members in your mind's eye right now. And without being morbid, And without forgetting that there's good news for sinners, remember that unless they repent, there really is a day coming in which they will have no rest day and night, verse 11. A day really is coming when they will long for just one cool drop of water on their tongue and none will be given to them. Don't be slack in proclaiming the eternal gospel because God's judgment is real. Hell is real. And thus, most of what these two angels say in verses 8 and 11, 8 to 11, is not unexpected to us. But I want you to notice there is one truth tucked away in verses 9 and 10 that you may have never spotted before. Listen again. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Tormented in the presence of the Lamb. Notice that well. Because don't we sometimes describe hell as the absence of God? Don't we sometimes speak of people who die in their sins as going to a Christless eternity? We do speak of that way. And and there's good reason for us to speak of them that way. Because Paul elsewhere describes eternal destruction, 2 Thessalonians 1, as being away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power away from the presence of the Lord. So there is a sense in which to be in hell will be to be eternally away from the presence of the Lord. And yet, according to Revelation 14.10, there is another sense in which to be in hell will be to be eternally tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the Lamb. 
And the question is, how can both be true? How can the damned be both away from the presence of the Lord and tormented in his presence at the same time? It's a good question. It seems to me that in 2 Thessalonians, Paul must be speaking of our being away from the gracious presence of the Lord, away from his mercy, away from his grace, away from his kindness, away from his fatherly care, away from his protection, away from all possibility of repentance, away from God in all the ways that we have come to know him. And to an ungodly person, the flames of hell notwithstanding, that might actually sound appealing. Someone might even say, you know, I've been trying all my life to get away from God. And at least in hell, I will finally have done so. But no, says the angel. Hell may be the absence of God's blessing, 2 Thessalonians 1, but it will be the presence of God in his wrath. Again, verses 9 and 10. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Interesting, the book of Revelation does not paint a picture of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, does it? He is gentle. He is meek. He is like a lamb. Yes, he died for our sins. He loves sinners. He's harmless to those who repent. But the book of Revelation reminds us that to those who refuse to repent, they will never be able to escape his presence and his wrath, not even in hell. Even there, the omnipresent God will be, not in blessing, but in wrath. So before it's too late... Those of you who are without Christ tonight, repent. Flee into the gracious presence of the Lamb now so that you will not have to flee from His wrathful presence then. And before it's too late, let the rest of us join that first angel in proclaiming the eternal gospel to every nation and tribe and tongue and people while there's still opportunity. So then... We've considered 144,000 saints. We've seen three angels. And now, very briefly, in the third place, let's listen to two voices. Two voices. Verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. 144,000 saints Three angels, two voices. First, a voice from heaven in verse 13, and second, the voice of the Spirit. Now, some may interpret both of these voices as being one and the same. They may say, well, the Spirit was the one speaking at the beginning of the verse, but it was only in the second half that John realized who was speaking. But I think it's better to understand the unidentified voice in verse 13a as being an unidentified voice to which the Spirit, in verse 13b, gives his yes, his amen of agreement. Two voices. And the message of those two voices, here's the main point, is one of encouragement. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. 
Do you believe that? Do you believe that those who have died in the Lord and are gone from our presence are blessed? My mind, when I read this, immediately turns to Arnold. I think of Amber Mathenia. I think of Eileen Worley. I think of Bernard Furnish. And I think of them and I say to myself, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. They are happier, much happier than you and I have ever been. And as long as you and I are in the Lord, like them, we need not run from the thought of death. Death is a blessing, this verse says. Death, painful and frightening as the process may be, is God's final messenger to carry us into the arms of Jesus. So the voice from heaven is right. Blessed are they who have died in the Lord. Now, it's true that death can be the worst thing in the world if someone doesn't die in the Lord, right? We've just been seeing that in verses 9 through 11, haven't we? If someone doesn't die in the Lord, there's fire and brimstone in the full mixture of God's wrath from which there's no rest day and night. That's true. But for the people of God, for those who die in the Lord, death is a blessing. And they are blessed who have gone on. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. They will not be led to a lake of fire, as we read, but to the streams of the water of life. Blessed are they who die in the Lord. They will not see brimstone. They'll see jasper stone and sapphire and emerald in the heavenly city. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. They will not experience the wrath of the Lamb, but His embrace. Blessed are those who die in the Lord, because far from having no rest day and night, we're told here they will rest from their labors. Isn't that amazing? In heaven, all the work will be done. And we will be able to say with Jesus, it is finished. There is one similarity, however, between those who have Satan's mark on their forehead and those who have Christ. Namely, that in both cases, their deeds follow with them. The sinner's deeds will follow with him and drag him down to the pit of hell where he'll pay for them forever. But the saint's deeds, we're told in verse 13, will follow with him too. The Lord sees your acts of faithfulness, even if no one else does. And in heaven, you will hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. 144,000 saints, three angels, two voices, and finally... Most importantly, one like a son of man. Verse 14, I looked and behold a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. And in this way, I love the way Revelation 14 mirrors the emphasis of the whole Bible. In the whole Bible, as in this chapter, there are thousands of God's saints, aren't there? Serving the Lord and doing his will in their generation. In the whole Bible, there are numbers of holy angels delivering God's message and ministering to God's people, just as they are here. In the whole Bible, there are numbers of different voices speaking comfort to God's saints. 
just like we hear here. But at the end of the day, as in this chapter, the whole story of the Bible is really about one hero, one seated on a throne, one standing on Mount Zion, one coming with the clouds. And the same thing is true as we scan across the whole panorama of human history, isn't it? Not just in the Bible, but in the last 2,000 years and in all sorts of places in the Old Testament times that were never recorded in the Bible, there were many people speaking for God. There were many hearts praising Him. There were many lives dedicated to His services, service, but all those voices and all those hearts and all those lives were all and are still all waiting on one person, one voice, one heart, one life to retake His place at center stage. The whole book of Revelation, the whole New Testament, the whole Bible, the whole of human history is pointing forward to and waiting eagerly for the arrival of one person. And here in Revelation 14, after all the waiting, he finally makes his appearance. Then I looked, verse 1, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. Here in Revelation 14, finally is the second coming of Christ. We've been waiting all this time through the book of Revelation, longing to get to this moment, eager to get to this moment, anticipating this moment. This is what the book is pointing to. And praise God, we're finally here. The Lamb is standing on Mount Zion, and we see Him in verse 14, coming with the clouds, one like a son of man. He's finally here. That's what this study's been all about, to get to this chapter. And our emotions as we come to this chapter will be the same as the emotions that we will feel in that great day, only on a larger scale by far, when he finally comes, not just in this chapter, but in real time. All of this time, we've been waiting. All of these centuries, God's people have been watching the eastern sky, as it were, looking for his coming. All of these Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, we've been gathering to sing about Christ's return. And the day will come, as in our reading tonight, when he will finally come. We'll finally see him standing on Mount Zion. We will finally see him coming with the clouds of heaven. He's coming. And what a thought, what a thrill that ought to be for our souls. How we ought to watch for him all the more eagerly. How we ought to pray and long for his coming more than we do. How we ought to hasten the day of his coming by getting the gospel to every tongue and tribe and people and nation. He's coming. We don't know when. We don't know if we'll be alive when he comes, but he's coming. He's coming just like the prophet Daniel said he would come with the clouds of heaven. He's coming just like the apostle Paul said he would come at the last trumpet as we saw in chapter 11, with the voice of the archangel here in verse 15. He's coming, it seems to me, at the end of the great tribulation here, not at the beginning. He's coming to a world ravaged with sin, a world raked over the coals of God's judgment, a world reduced in many places to scorched earth and rubble. And at the end of all things, he will finally scoop up his believing remnant out of the world. That's what verses 14 to 16 describe, isn't it? 
I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. That's the first of two harvests that are described here at the end of chapter 14. And in this first harvest, we see Christ using a sickle and reaping the earth. And normally you use a sickle to reap wheat. And wheat, as you know, is a symbol in the New Testament for the people of God. Isn't that what Jesus said in the parable of the wheat and the tares? God will throw the tares into the fire at the last day, but the wheat, Jesus said, the sons of the kingdom will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. At the end of the age, said Jesus, the wheat will finally be gathered into God's kingdom. And what do we see Jesus doing here but gathering wheat and bringing in his harvest, finally taking his people out of this sin-sick world? Here in verses 14 through 16, we see Jesus doing what Paul said he would do famously in 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And we've seen all those things. And here's the reaping. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. That's what's happening in Revelation 14, 14 through 16. That's what John is describing in this picture language. I looked and behold, a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. He had a sharp sickle in his hand. Verse 16, he swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. He's coming with the clouds, and we who are alive and trusting him, and we who are dead in the Lord will rise and meet him in the air. But what else in Jesus' famous parable did he say would happen at the end of the age? Not only will the wheat be harvested, but the tares will be reaped as well and gathered into bundles and cast into the fire. And that's what we see happening in verses 17 through 20, albeit with a slightly different metaphor. Another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has the power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. When Jesus returns, we're being told here, there will be two harvests, wheat and tares. Or to use the metaphor here, grain and grapes, sons of the kingdom and sons of hell. He's coming. And these two sickles will be put in. These two groups will be garnered. These two groups will be sent to their eternal destinations. And we must, reading this chapter, ask ourselves, to which harvest do I belong? To which kingdom 
am I headed?